Ensemble 74 presents How Can We All Make It Into the Future? 74 podcast series. On the podcast, we discuss the global pandemic we're currently facing and how it'll reshape our reality and society with opinion leaders and creative minds from all over the world. Let's explore together what the future might bring for us. My name is Timothy Varekia, and I run a consulting firm that specializes in advising global leaders in business, culture, and politics. We build bridges between the private and the public spheres to reduce the gap between our lives as consumers and citizens. Today, I am speaking with Patricia Espinoza, the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and UN Undersecretary General. She is the embodiment of a life committed to serving public welfare and global challenges. I was fortunate enough to meet Secretary Spinoza when she invited me to the COP25 in Madrid in December 2019. We embarked on a dialogue on how to meet today's challenges at a time where everybody seems to be wanting to do something about climate change, but doesn't know where to start. Secretary Spinoza, hello. Hello. Hello, team. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you today. Thank you very much. Always, always wonderful and exciting to be speaking with you. So I wanted to just um, get a little bit of background about uh, your life in, in public service. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with people like you who've devoted their lives to things that are uh, about the collective. And you have a very longstanding and impressive career in, the, in, in government politics and specifically international relations. Um, can you tell me where that came from? Well, thank you for raising this uh, question because it uh, brings me back to, to um, the family in which I grew up. You know, I am uh, one of uh, six siblings and uh, my father and mother both came from a background that was not uh, wealthy, actually not even highly educated parents, but they both, were able to go to university and study uh, and they both became civil servants. My mother was um, a teacher all her life. Uh, she did study psychology as well. So uh, at the uh, later stage of her work, she had the opportunity to be uh, the psychologist in one high school, uh, which she would tell us about it, uh, how rewarding it was to be able to help guide young people that were coming. Uh, in the case of my father, he was one of 13 siblings and the mother was left alone with them when he was very young. So the mother really had a hard time to raise them. And um, by the time he finished high school, in Guanajuato, Mexico, which is where he came from. Uh, there was not even the possibility for him to go to university. So he left to Mexico City with some friends, no support from his family. And uh, he came to Mexico, um, became a lawyer, and immediately started an incredible career as a civil servant. He was um, person that uh, always at home used to tell us about the situation of so many people in, in our country, in Mexico. He worked most of his life uh, with uh, rural development. So 
he was very close to the realities of uh, peasants in, in Mexico. You know, how much could be done from government by implementing policies, by taking decisions that would allow those people to change their lives. So this is the environment where I grew up. And uh, for, for him also always, both of them actually always saying, you know, our, what we will leave for you behind is your education. So you have to really try to be good at what you do. I think the most important lesson beyond really learning hard work every day is what you need to do if you want to do something that, is, that has a, a meaning. Beyond that, what was uh, always amazing is how much they both loved what they did, how much they saw work as, um, as something gratifying, not as a burden. And uh, I think that's, that's probably one of the most important lessons. So I decided to study international relations. Of course, my situation was very different from them because they, they were very supportive all the time during my studies. By the time I, I finished uh, my studies, then I started to, to look at, okay, what can I do? How should I now apply this, this knowledge and, and, and where do I want to work? So my thought was, actually, we need to realize that what happens beyond our borders in Mexico impacts us and can allow us to, to get uh, better opportunities for our people. And this is why I decided to go into diplomacy and to work in the international sphere. And I have to say, I have enjoyed my work all my life. Yes, it implies sometimes that you have to make sacrifices, give up time with your children, for example, which is very important. At the same time, I feel very privileged to have been able to serve uh, in so many ways for my country. Thank you for this. So enlightening on, on you know, the way you lead your organization today, um, you know, in terms of anchoring in, in values that, you know, have really struck me about being, again, being about the collective and, and, and you know, the public good. And, and we've had conversations about how, we feel like that's changed. You know, I think that there's, you know, you and I have spoken early on about this kind of disillusionment or the feeling we have of younger generations abandoning what we call legacy politics. I feel like there's, there might be a change in these types of values. I mean, not to sound too old school, but do you, how do you think we can revive this kind of notion that there are bodies and organizations that we can turn to to help everybody because that seems to be something that we're losing. I agree. I agree fully with you, Tim. I think that there's a lot of things to be done from all sides. On the side of, of society and uh, how the environment in which young people are developing, I, I think uh, there's a lot of reflection to make. On the one side, if, if I think about me growing up, how, how little information I had from what was going on beyond uh, my own country. And I, I make that contrast with um, uh, what is happening today, where young people 
even people that are really poor and have very limited resources do have mostly access to IT. So they are confronting their own reality every day with what what is happening in other places in the world. And um, the fact that we have such an unequal world, unequal societies, I think it becomes even more relevant and, and people are closer to that very painful reality. So I think there is, a, there is a responsibility also in trying to impress on, on young people, um, as you say, values, values that are not the material thing. Okay, these guys over there, they have such a good life and uh, uh, this is, I will never be able to have a life like theirs. But, you know, that's not about the values. How about the the value of family? How about the value of contributing to uh, the good in your community? And maybe those uh, young people who are well off, that have a nice uh, life or apparently a a nice life, are very unhappy. You know, so yes, that's one area. But on the other side also, I think we need to be very very critical of um, performance uh, by governments in in many places. The truth is that we live in a world that is full of conflicts everywhere, Uh, in my view, very much fueled by by the uh, disparities there are everywhere. And uh, we what we see is governments that are not have not been able to really address those realities. Many times, actually, because they are guided by the, by the most powerful, but by those who want to preserve the status quo, and therefore it becomes a vicious circle. It's really um, a, a situation where we need everybody's uh, deep reflection and self-critical reflection. You know, one question I have for you is that because you've served in both in national governmental organizations, you've, of course, been Secretary of Foreign Affairs for for the Mexican government, and you've served as ambassadors for Mexico in, in multiple countries, you know, before being at the UN. Do you feel like the organizations, intergovernmental organizations like the UN have a better chance at solving these issues, you know, solving the issues, not just of the values, but the disparities that you speak of that seem to be at the core, of the issues we're facing today. Do you, is that why you've chosen to focus on these types of organizations rather than staying in, in national government? Well, um, yes, um, I have spent um, a big part of my career in, in multilateral fora. Uh, Geneva was my first posting abroad, and there I worked at the Mexican mission to the United Nations. And I was uh, following um, uh, negotiations, uh, dialogues on um, raw materials, shipping, uh, lots of issues related to development. Um, It became very clear to me that uh, any chance of overcoming the big challenges uh, in in my country and in so many countries on in the world would need to be done through multilateral cooperation 
the way that the current uh, world is interconnected just makes it uh, indispensable. So there is no other platform. You need to have a body where you get all the actors together in order to try to overcome uh, the problems. Right now, for example, when we look at the pandemic or we look at climate change, it is very clear. Both issues do not respect borders. They do not care about ideologies. They are affecting everybody and there is no way to overcome them if we do not cooperate uh, all together. So to me, it's very clear that the United Nations is the platform. That doesn't mean that everything in the United Nations is perfect. On the contrary, at the end, the United Nations is a reflection of all the countries that are parties to the organization. So if you have uh, these imperfections in, at national governments, you will see that also in our processes within the UN. However, still, I mean, if we think back at uh, 1945 and we think that the United Nations was, was created in order to free the world from the scourge of war, now we could say the United Nations is the platform to free the world of any kind of scourge. So I think um, this, this is the relevance. We need to work a lot in order to make it more effective, uh, in order to reflect, you know, the best values of uh, humankind, which is what it should represent, and it does not uh, do it correctly. Thank you for this. Um, so we'll come back to some of the challenges, you know, diving in and, you know, having had the privilege to come and visit you and at the UNFCCC in Bonn, I've, I've had a chance to understand about some of the mechanisms at play with the UN, but I want to get to the UNFCCC. Can you explain what the UNFCCC is and what its core mission is on climate? Well, the UNFCCC is um, actually the secretariat to the convention, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was adopted 25 years ago. Uh, so this is where, uh, when the Secretariat was created, it started with um, a, a very small group of uh, colleagues who were doing the work as a Secretariat to the Convention, about uh, 10 people. And what was uh, the objective? So let's try to think about that, that moment. So 25 years ago, international community having reviewed uh, the scientific evidence and following the leadership by some countries, uh, decided that yes, there was a need to have a treaty that would allow everybody to cooperate to address climate change. However, at that time, even if um, everybody was convinced that that was an issue that needed to be addressed, uh, as you can imagine, there was still a lot of skepticism and there was a lot of, um, of questions about, uh, you know, whether that would, uh, this climate uh, change, this global warming would happen in, in the lifetime of the people that were at that time uh, dealing with the, with the conversations. Uh, so um, in order, those who were pushing for this agenda, uh, in order to make sure that there would not be 
uh, uh, that the issue would not be forgotten, uh, managed to get into the convention article that says that the parties to the convention need to meet every year to make an assessment of how the process is going. So this is why we have in this uh, huge um, uh, process a conference of the parties every year. So what happened mm -hmm. was, um, I mean, the evidence uh, about the issue of climate change was so clear that very rapidly the convention uh, became an almost universal convention. Um, and uh, from, from that process, uh, what was pending after having um, agreed on the convention with lays out a general framework, which basically says we have to cooperate in order to address climate change, how we have to um, facilitate uh, technologies that are good to address climate change. We have to support developing countries, giving them some finance, and we need to all take some measures in order to reduce our emissions. What was not clear from the beginning in the convention, uh, what would be the contribution of each of those parties in the, in the world? That took um, really 20 years uh, to come together in the Paris Agreement. The first attempt was the Kyoto Protocol. It did not work, first of all, because the level of ambition in terms of the, the goal for re reducing emissions was too low. Secondly, because even after having uh, approved the Kyoto Protocol, the U.S. decided not to ratify it. And, and that meant uh, that it was really uh, very much weakened uh, because one of the most important emitters in the world would not commit to the goals under the Kyoto Protocol. So that was the first attempt. Uh, we learned a lot from, from that process, uh, which now is, is helping in order to put in place uh, the tools for implementing the Paris Agreement. In Paris, possibility of uh, getting the world all together to agree that yes, each and every country in the world has a responsibility to contribute to addressing climate change became a reality. And this is why um, the Paris Agreement is uh, one of the most important achievements of multilateralism. It has become also an almost universal treaty in record time. What we do is uh, we follow up on how countries are implementing their commitments under uh, the Convention and the Paris Agreement. For example, under the Convention, parties would be obliged to present plans on what they were doing regarding uh, climate change. The Secretariat receives the information and then puts it together is then able to make different reports on different issues on what is happening in the, in, in the countries in the world. Another important function by the Secretariat is to create a platform for countries to come together and discuss what has been uh, successful, what has worked for them, and why would that or the other measure be better if you want to address a certain situation. So it's, it's a place where all of them come together, they share experiences, they also offer each other support. 
over the 20 years mm -hmm. until we had the agreement, the Paris Agreement, there was also a very important function which was to guide the, the discussions on what could be the goals and how could goals be set. And that was, you know, implied, of course, um, lots of things regarding very, very technical issues, but also legal issues, what kind of uh, commitments and how would we uh, be able to follow up on that? How can we make a, an have an overview of what is really happening? One thing that really struck me at, at COP25 when, you know, I was able to um, experience, you know, the event is uh, what seems to be almost two different worlds that are side by side. But, you know, inside the vision I had was that, you know, inside the convention, you know, the, the COP itself were led by, you know, your organization was, you know, uh, different types of governmental representatives, for-profit, non-profit actors that were discussing the issues within very strict processes and frameworks. And it seemed like outside the building, in essence, was the general public and a number of different actors from, you know, the private sphere. And I felt like there was uh, almost a, a clear divide between those two worlds. And it was kind of striking as to what seemed like the lack of collaboration and bridges between the two. Do you think that that's something that is uh, becoming more and more challenging for the, for your organization? Uh, having a limited ability to take to build these bridges with the outside world. You're absolutely right. I see this as one of the big challenges that we have today because uh, climate change is an issue that really affects every single aspect of the life. And um, the, the complexity of this issue makes it very difficult for the general public to understand. And at the same time, I would say, uh, for the good and bad reasons now, we are uh, in a situation where the general public is every time more aware of the problem. I say that the good reasons is because science is, is there, the evidence is much more known. So that's the good reasons. The bad reasons is because we are confronted every day with uh, these extreme weather events in every uh, region of the world. And ev every one of those extreme weather events mean uh, lost lives and livelihoods, mean really uh, just amazing uh, economic damages, like last year, uh, the, the estimate is that a cost of about 150 billion in, in costs from these um, disasters that are related to climate change. The, the catastrophes have become a normal. They, we see them and we read about them every day. Having said that, within the negotiations, uh, we are still looking at some issues that are really very far from that reality. For example, what kind of information uh, will and how will countries uh, need to provide for us to be able to have a good uh, picture uh, uh, that allows us to compare what happens in China, even in, in one of the small islands in the Pacific. 
the disparity of realities and at the same time the need to build a process that allows us uh, and to to provide to the world an overall picture of what is really happening uh, makes the com the conversations and the negotiations very difficult uh, however i think uh, now that we are uh, slowly uh, getting to uh, the moment where we can uh, embark in full implementation of the Paris Agreement. Uh, I think this is a time where we may be able to, to build that bridge in a better way between the negotiations and mm -hmm. the real world, what I, I, I always call the real world, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, because in, in, in essence, it really struck me that, um, you you know, because you're dependent on the, the parties, that is the countries that are part of the convention, there's only so much you can do in terms of outreach and collaboration with what you refer to as the real world. And, you know, what we're seeing, of course, is we're seeing a lot of awareness from the general public, you know, obviously with, you know, leading figures on you know, in the media, in social media and whatnot that are, you know, just igniting awareness at best or virtually signaling at the worst. And then we have private actors, you know, corporations or private citizens who are embarking on their own solutions. And it seems to me like the, the essential role of an organization like the UN and more specifically the UNFCCC is to really be at the center. You know, I was really struck at the COP at how you were able to synthesize a state of things like having insights you know based on science saying here are the issues that we have identified that we're able to quantify with data and science and research and here are the priorities we're setting out and here are the solutions that we feel are working because it seems to me like again one of the great functions and one of the great um, opportunities for bodies like the UNFCCC is to precisely be control tower for, for research and the legitimate body for scalable solutions. You know, I think that we, I see it as a great risk in the fight for climate change that everybody kind of does their own thing. You know, even if there's a lot of goodwill and there's a lot of good solutions, it seems like scalability really is at the core of the success. Of Absolutely, fully agree with you. The dispersion of efforts uh, that we are seeing is is a problem. Of course, you can see it as um, a, a very very good signal because it means there's a lot going on. Uh, but you know, in order to really have uh, uh, to make all those uh, actions have the impact that we require for the uh, full transformation of societies. We, we need to make it bigger. And the paradox is, yes, while governments, national governments are the parties to the convention and, and the Paris Agreement, at the same time, if we want to be successful in this transformation, we need everybody on board. Mm. It, it, this is an issue that cannot be solved by governments alone, where, of course, governments need to put in place uh, the right policies, the right incentives, the right um, mechanisms and programs in order to provide uh, the different actors with a very clear path forward. But at the same time, in the formal negotiations, the only ones that are sitting there are the parties.
Now, I think that in a way, um, it's also indicating that the multilateral system is probably in a moment where it needs to evolve. It needs to evolve to, to a next uh, uh, stage and a next step where other actors beyond the national governments uh, need to be need to sit together and their role need to be needs to be acknowledged in a much more substantive way than until now. But don't we run the risk of, I mean, there is a debate, for instance, in the United States on some issues like space or health or, you know, climate, you know, the, the, the risk that, you know, by including private actors, we tend to delegitimize organizations like yours and, and potentially and potentially privatize these battles, you know? There's a controversy around the inclusion of all, you know, th those well, new types you know, of profiles. Well, you know, I think that th the point is that it's not, um, it's not either or, you know? It's, it's not, it's the, the UN or it's the governments or the private sector. I think that what needs to, to happen is that we, we get that together. I think that, um, the world is very is very fortunate now that we have a very good roadmap for uh, the future decades. It's not only, of course, the Paris Agreement regarding climate change, but it is also the 2015 uh, Sustainable Development Goals um, that really marks the big challenges. I think on that, the UN has really made a big contribution to the future of humanity, saying we need to have everybody in this world needs to be taken out of poverty. We need to eradicate hunger. We need to ensure that everyone can get a job. Having this agenda and then mm. putting together everyone that needs to participate and needs to make a contribution towards the achievement the achievement of the agenda i think is the next step but it's not substituting those general goals and that uh, bigger agenda that has already been defined one of the other you know key moments for me at, at cop aside from your absolutely fantastic quotes uh, you know i believe it was uh, in a sea of voices, science must be our common language, which, you know, <laughs> our listeners have to put into context. This was pre-COVID, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. You know, the fact that you really insist on basing um, all of the great work that your organization does on science and on research. I think that's, you know, such a, a solid pillar of the policymaking that you do. But one of the other great moments for me at the COP was when you delivered these 10 insights, um, you know, on, on the fight against climate change. And what was most striking, if not frightening to me, was uh, the fact that the last two insights, big insights that you delivered, were about the social impact and the political impact of the fight against climate change and how your organization, along with the researchers, that participated really noted that, you know, the greatest threats that we are facing really now, and we're seeing it on the daily news, are not just about, you know, our our, our quality of life, but essentially about the social and political consequences of climate. Yes, um, can yes, you speak of to this for a little I think this bit? is this is one of the of the areas where we 
we have a challenge still. While we can very well document that climate change is about uh, not only about raw science regarding uh, temperature rise and uh, uh, behavior of um, the Arctic and uh, uh, these different aspects, we also need to to realize that it is about um, the lives of people. So social and political consequences are absolutely necessary to, to, to take into account. Take the example of the processes of um, when you have these terrible droughts in Africa, in the Sahel region, and uh, people are displaced and then um, become very vulnerable to the um, criminal groups in the area. And then uh, we see all these um, uh, people going, uh, trying to escape this reality, going to Europe. Then we saw in Europe this mass uh, migration that was very scary for many of the people in Europe. So that's an, a very clear example of the fact that it is not not only about uh, changing your energy sources towards uh, renewable renewable sources of energy. That's important and necessary. That's a very big part of the transformation. But you also have to deal with these situations that have to do with real lives of people. In my own country, in Mexico, every year we have these um, terrible floods. Of course, these situations hit in the worst way the, the poorest people. So every year you have displaced people, people who have lost or their, their homes. And that becomes really a very important political problem as well, because people feel that their uh, needs are not being addressed. If we, if we think about uh, what we see, for example, uh, with some young people, I, I get very worried. Uh, as you know, I'm a mother, so I get very worried when I hear young people becoming really anxious, uh, thinking I, what is going to happen in the world when I grow up, you know, and they become scared. It's not only, you know, the, the normal fear that you don't know what you want to study, how you want to work, but it's really this fear that, oh, I really don't know what kind of, of world I will be living in. Do I want to have children at all? So, and, and those, mm. those very um, real fears and anxiety can lead to a very difficult political and social environment. Uh, these are all aspects that unfortunately have not been yet taken fully into account and that we need to address as well. Is that also um, an opportunity for you? the political implications and the immediate social implications for governments are such that your expertise and the function of the Secretariat on Climate becomes even more, more central and essential to the parties and the governments that you deal with. And I an think it can be an opportunity to, um, uh, to address actually not only climate change, but also some uh, of the biggest challenges of humanity, because uh, really climate change is linked to all of those uh, big, big challenges. Um, I think it, it in my in my case, the fact that I have been in government before, that I have had that experience, is also helpful because I I know I can see 
how important it is that while we work on this agenda, we do not only concentrate on working with energy writers, that, that we, we should realize that, uh, okay, all of this will require involvement of political actors that are responsible for policy making beyond environment for for budget and uh, planning you know um, for for a, a smart agriculture how are we going to uh, achieve a much better and much smarter uh, way you know and uh, at the same time the chain, right. uh, yeah what are the risks there the risk is um, it's really about uh, food security and so I yes, I see it as an opportunity. It's an enormous task, but um, I feel privileged that I have the chance to be able to contribute. I, I I'd love to know what makes you optimistic. I mean, what some I mean, we hear all the bad news on because I, I think that the conversation, the public awareness and the public discourse on COVID has really impacted in both positive and negative ways, but mainly what I foresee as being negative ways, the, the conversation on, on climate, what are some of the things that you're seeing changing positively? I mean, you know, people like me in these kind of responsibilities, what we have to give is this sense of hope, right? Um, and, and I always say the only thing yes. we cannot afford is to give up. You know, that's not, and especially not uh, uh, people like yes. me who have a responsibility. So you owe it to all the people uh, around you and you owe it to the future generations. So what are the reasons why I'm hopeful? I think paradoxically this year, while it has been so difficult, so challenging, it has also brought windows of opportunity. For the first time, we have seen that the world has been able to mobilize in a way that nobody thought it was possible, right? Just a few months ago, you would have mm. told people, you know, at, there will be some time where everybody in the world will be wearing masks. I think everybody would have said, oh, no, that's not going to be possible, right? And, and it happened just right, a, right. A, at the beginning of this year. If you would have said, you know, by the end of the year, 13 trillion U.S. dollars will have been mobilized for recovery packages from a crisis worldwide, I think nobody would have believed it. So um, the fact that we are seeing a mobilization of resources without precedent and the possibility that those resources yes. could be invested in a smart way, in a way that allows us to build a better future, I think it's really a huge opportunity. And I, I really hope that the leaders of the world will take their responsibility very seriously when they make use of these resources, which are resources actually that we are borrowing from future generations we make use of them in this very responsible way. I'm also hopeful that uh, the public everywhere, the voters, will ask their decision makers, their politicians, that they do this. 
And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful because there is, as we were saying, more awareness about this, what this really means, what uh, climate change really means. I'm also hopeful, of course, because we have amazing uh, scientists and uh, humankind has demonstrated capacity to overcome challenges that sometimes were, were thought to be impossible to overcome. And finally, I also see some important signals in the political, geopolitical sphere. If we look at the announcements made uh, recently by China about becoming carbon neutral at the latest by 2060, and uh, Japan uh, and Korea by 2050, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that the European Union will come forward with this very uh, ambitious uh, plan very soon. The UK has announced an amazingly um, ambitious plan regarding uh, climate change. And, uh, of course, also the uh, results of the U.S. election indicates that there will be uh, an important change in the U.S. government. Yes, I mean, all reasons to be hopeful. And I, I want to get back to you, Secretary Espinoza. What does, um, you know, um, after having devoted so much time and energy to, uh, you know, to, the, again, what I refer to as the collective good, what does Whoa. what does success look like for you? <laughs> well, on a personal level, on a level, personal level, um, on a more personal it, level, it means it means really being able to. If I look at the the short term, uh, when we will have COP twenty six, for me, success will mean that we are able to completely finalize all the tools to implement the Paris Agreement, that we uh, come to Glasgow with a really a very very broad range of uh, stakeholders that can show that actually this process of transformation is happening because right now i we what we see when when you look at the the different uh, examples of how how much things have changed uh what we see are very important efforts but sometimes i wonder whether this really means that the transformation is actually irreversible, whether we are going to uh, be heading uh, in a very clear manner towards this um, sustainable future. That, that's, that's for me uh, success. Also as the head of the U UN Secretariat, if, if I could see that um, the Secretariat is able to perform in in a really in an efficient way and provide this platform that the world uh, needs it's not about us it's really about um, creating that future for the generations to come but also the generations that are already here no i i i, I agree with you also that you know if you know one of the reasons i i i wish for your success is of course you know first and foremost about the great work that you do on, on climate. But I do think there's something to be said about this template, this template for an organization like yours to be leading the conversation and to kind of be the meeting platform for all the great energy for solving a global issue. You know, and I think that's really the core of the UN model. And if you're able to solve it on climate, um, you know, we can replicate this model, you know, and really go back to the core 
function of the UN. And I think it's, it's you know, that, that would be a, a really exciting, uh, exciting win as well for, for indeed, that level indeed, of, Tim. Uh, As an internationalist governance. all my life, you know, this is for me uh, really the dream uh, that, we, that we manage to get an organization that is capable, able, that has the credibility, that has the tools to really lead and provide that big global platform for everyone to come together. Wonderful. Well, uh, Secretary Espinoza, it's always great to be uh, chatting with you. Thank you so much for, for your time. And, you know, um, we um, I look forward to speaking with you again next year and, you know, uh, hopefully uh, hopefully visit you uh, either in Bonn or thank uh, you, Tim. the COP26 thank you for in Glasgow. But thank you so much for your and time. And I look forward to our future conversations.